I, I just want to give hope for people out there to say, hey, it's not so bad to raise outside capital. It doesn't have to be you know, a scary thing. As long as you are intentional about who you approach and who you take on. So far, I'm very proud of the, the team you know, we have and the partners that we've brought on. Hello and welcome to Shopify Masters, the podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Shwang Esther Shan. What if I told you that being healthy could be fun and maybe even delicious? That's what Trey and Ashley Lockerbie discovered when they first got into kombucha, that bubbly fermented tea that's filled with probiotics. The couple mastered their recipe after countless hours experimenting in the kitchen and eventually created Better Booch. It's a lighthearted kombucha brand designed to improve your day and immune system. Trey looks after the operations and finance side, while Ashley is the brains behind branding and marketing. On this episode of Shopify Masters, Trey is with us. Later this week, you'll hear from Ashley. Trey, welcome to the show. Shwang, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you. So we got to start off and ask you, why kombucha? And how did you differentiate yourselves uh, when you launched almost a decade ago? Well, when I first learned about kombucha, it was presented as almost this uh, mythical drink that could cure any ailment. And it was almost passed around from home to home in, in like this kind of cottage industry uh, setting where it was almost, uh, dare I say, looked down upon to even sell it. It was just people had a very interesting uh, relationship to kombucha when I first discovered it. And it just piqued my interest. And it was kind of sold or I guess presented to me as um, a convenient way to get a lot of uh, immunity in your system via probiotics and essential acids and antioxidants. And I mean, it's just, it's jam packed and chock full with all kinds of beneficial things for your body. And I was really interested in that because at the time I was a touring musician and, and, uh, I was trying to do anything I could to stay healthy on the road because, uh, being sick on the road, especially is, is terrible. And it's very hard to eat healthy on the road. Um, the number of gas station subway sandwiches I've had in my lifetime is, is, you know, uh, disconcerting at this point. So I've, I, I was, you know, trying to inject any, any source of health I could in a very convenient fashion while you're on the move. And kombucha was originally introduced to me by my sister who is a longtime cancer survivor. And she was diagnosed at 23 with, uh, breast cancer and, She's been through everything under the sun, every surgery, every you know chemo, every radiation. And really, it got to a point where she needed to try something else. Uh, she went to Germany to find uh, an immunology treatment that she couldn't get in the U.S. And they really educated her on, on new diets. And um, kombucha was part of that. And it just made her feel amazing. And she kept raving about how great it made, made her feel. And... To be quite honest, the first time I tried it, I, I nearly spit it out because I went and bought some off the shelf and it was very vinegary and very off-putting and I kind of swore off it for a while. I was like, I can't drink that stuff. But, um, you know, lo and behold, I was I was living next to a organic shop. So when I was in town, I walked by and there was a how to brew kombucha class. And so I said, all right, well, maybe... If I learn to brew it myself, I can make it taste great. And the first time we brewed up a peach tea kombucha, which, you know, is my favorite, uh, the light bulb really went off. And, and it occurred to me that, 
oh, kombucha is actually supposed to be delicious if you know what you're doing. And everyone I know who I grew up with would drink this and I wouldn't even have to sell them on all the health benefits because it's just delicious. So that was sort of the, the impetus for transitioning off the road, uh, moving into a, something more mission-driven and, and that was trying to introduce what I call a secret agent of health to the masses. I love it. And it sounds like there's so many different chapters of you discovering kombucha from that first taste to actually loving it and also brewing it. Can you walk us through the process of you perfecting the recipe? Absolutely. So first and foremost, we got a little bit lucky in a way because the traditional way to brew kombucha involves a lot of things like infusing it with actual fruit and or adding actual juice. Most commercial kombuchas just brew some kind of tea and then they'll, they'll flavor it with juice. And that's problematic because it's adding more sugar to the kombucha. And if it's a real kombucha and it's alive, it's going to continue to ferment away that sugar and create more things like more acid. And so that's why you end up with a lot of kombucha that is overly acidic. And, and actually, it, it can also produce more alcohol as well. So uh, there was a, a long time issue and, and some, some brands are still struggling with controlling their alcohol levels. Uh, but at one point, Whole Foods took all the kombucha off the shelf because they were all sitting there over fermenting and becoming problematic and, and alcoholic. So the first time we tried, I was basically just op working off of a sweet peach tea that I love to drink on its own. And so when the result of that was originally sort of a, a much smoother drinking experience and you weren't getting something so acidic. So that's when I was kind of like, oh, that's, that's interesting because um, when I compared it to things that had juice in it, I would just get something that's overly vinegary. So it, it kind of set us on this trajectory early on to only use teas, herbs, botanicals, and adaptogens for the flavoring because we understood very early on that that added sugar was going to be problematic in a lot of different ways. So we, we ended up partnering with artisanal tea companies that were locally uh, sourced here in LA and designing flavors from scratch. And that's where another light bulb went off where I found out how creative uh, brewing kombucha could be. You know, much like music, we, were, we would sit across from each other instead of exchanging songs. Uh, we would have these sessions at the tea company where we were comparing kombuchas to teas and we were just, you know, experimenting and it was just super creative and fun. And that's uh, another thing that kind of grabbed our attention, both me and Ashley. We wanted, you know, to stay creative. And, and um, yeah, so there, like you said, there's been a lot of iterations. Um, at, at some point, we got a little bit smarter and we hired people that really know what they're doing. For example, we, we have a PhD a food scientist on staff now, a microbiologist on staff, um, and you know some people who come from the beer industry. So they, they know a lot about fermentation. And to be quite honest, it took a, a couple of years for us to really dial in our actual culture and our actual process, which I'm happy to say is now a proprietary process. And it produces better booch where you can't really find that anywhere else. So it sounds like you enlisted help of food scientists and also brainstorm jams with other companies that produce tea. Who else did you enlist in your process of sampling and reiterating? And how did you incorporate their feedback into your production process? Well, one thing I like to encourage every entrepreneur to do where applicable is uh, set up at farmer's markets because that was our initial source of income when we started the company we only did farmers markets for you know the first few months until we got picked up by the first grocery store and that is so 
valuable because you get this immediate customer reaction, right? No matter what it is, good or bad, you're getting that immediate feedback. So we were actually able to, to take that information and, and iterate pretty quickly and show up the next week and with a new batch of kombucha. And we'd, we'd experiment with different levels of flavor or ingredients. And it was sort of like showing up and having a focus group every week, just having you know new customers try things and sample things and give you that immediate feedback. So regardless of what you're selling, I mean, that just access to real-time feedback is incredible. And it also you know provided cash flow for us so we could, we could bootstrap the company for a number of years. What else is amazing about Better Booch is you started in your kitchen, but you also kept the production in-house and you actually own your own production facility, which um, not a lot of brands do, and you're not doing any co-backing. So tell us how you scaled and also moved to the different production facilities and still have ownership over them. Yeah, you highlight a great point there. What we like to say is that we are brewed, not blended. And so if you think about almost every other beverage you drink, it's probably coming from some source of powder or other kind of liquid that's blended together. And kombucha is special because it's a living thing and you have to take care of it. And uh, there's all kinds of special care that kind of goes into maintaining the quality of a kombucha culture because you have to control all the inputs and outputs and all the variables. And that, that took a long time for us because, you know, at some points we were just sort of strapped for cash. So things like even temperature were hard to control, you know, or the amount of oxygen that the kombucha would get or the, you know, it just, you, you name it. There was probably a whole myriad of variables we had to control. And it took a number of years to get every single one of them under our belt. And so we, we did start in a commercial kitchen early on and, we only could afford the midnight to 3 a.m. shift. So Ash and I would brew the kombucha at our house because we didn't want to you know, waste money just sitting there while it's steeped. Then we put it in these brew buckets and load up our car and drive to this place 30 minutes away in the middle of the night. And that's when we would take the old batches that had been fermenting for about a week or two and actually bottle them. And so... We grew pretty quickly out of that and entered our, our new space that was about, I don't know, 1,500 square feet at the time. And uh, now we're in about 25,000 square feet uh, total. We have our, our own brewery and it, it looks a lot more like a, a almost like a, a mix between a winery and a brewery. We use uh, these customized wine tanks for the fermentation. And then we use bright tanks that you find in, in a beer brewery that are the, it's all big stainless steel, beautiful equipment that... Uh, I like to say I, I nerd out more than I ever did on like a guitar or an amp or something like that. I really love the actual equipment that goes into making uh, beverages. I just think it's the most beautiful thing. Um, so it's been a it's been a long iteration. Uh, to answer your question about how we did that, it was a long haul of bootstrapping. Uh, I, I mentioned we did about seven years of bootstrapping. So you know, at some points we we produce kombucha for big private label brands. And that helped um, bring in more cash flow to, to help us keep building out capacity. And then about seven years in, we decided there's a lot of opportunity for Better Booch that we really want to go capture. We had an interest from major retailers that wanted to take us you know, nationwide, for example. So we had to bite the bullet and, and go raise outside capital for the first time. And uh, we wanted to have that experience too, know what it's like to have investors and be accountable to people and, and help 
make a good return for them. And um, that sounded fun to us at that point. So we, we transitioned to more of a, a speedboat approach from a, from a sailboat approach, <laughs> I like to say. And uh, now we're available nationwide. And, and to your point, it's, I think, crucial or critical that we manufacture it ourselves. It's the only way I could see us um, actually being able to maintain the quality that we do. And, you know, if you try and go co-pack, you really do lose the quality and you also are vulnerable to line time. So during COVID, for example, a lot of brands went under because they couldn't find the line time because they were prioritizing the major brands. And um, anyway, so I can go on and on, but that's, it's critical that we manufacture it ourselves, much like any craft brewery or, or, you know, great winery that you, you know, and love. I'm chatting with Trey Lockerbie, the CEO and co-founder of Better Booch. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Follow and subscribe to our show if you aren't already. And please leave us a review or comment with your feedback on your listening platform. I think what's really exciting that you mentioned is your bootstrapping journey for almost seven years. And then you decided to seek out outside investment. Um, It's definitely really rewarding, but it's also risky. So... What advice do you have for founders who are looking to transition into that chapter for fundraising? Well, lucky for us, we found an amazing attorney early on uh, who's just been, I mean, total godsend, and she really has our best interests at heart. And I, I think you need someone like that on your team to help protect you from all the many, many things that people can throw into a contract and throw you off. And um, I would say she's just been invaluable for us. Um, there's also great books out there. There's a great book. Um, called uh, How to Be Smarter Than Your VC. And um, there's a couple of other resources. One thing I would say is that I think partly we were afraid to take outside capital in the beginning because we were constantly told that venture capitalists, for example, would have all these strings on the company and they, if you didn't perform XYZ, they'd kick you out and they'd take over the company and just all these worst case scenario things that I believe do happen. Um, But it's not every VC. In fact, we've got a number of um, beverage-focused venture capital companies on our on our cap table now. And I would say that they're some of our favorite people on earth. I mean, they're just the most um, supportive, enthusiastic um, people that we could ever partner with. And we've had nothing but an, an incredible time with the, the partners that we have. So I, I just want to give hope for people out there to say, hey, it's not so bad to raise outside capital. It doesn't have to be a scary thing. As long as you are intentional about who you approach and who you take on, because we've certainly had some gut checks along the way with some folks we've talked to and said, yeah, this is not going to be the right fit. And so far, I'm very proud of the the team you know we have and the partners that we've brought on. And it sounds like when we were talking about uh, scaling up and the different production facilities, that requires major investment. I guess, can you take us through some pivotal moments and what key areas you invested in that really helped to grow Better Booch? Well, one of the funnest, earliest, uh, you know, forks in the road for us was just signing a two-year lease on that early 1,500 square foot facility. You know, I remember um, sitting down and telling my family that we were transitioning off the road to go make tea and we were going to sign this lease. And at the time, two years just felt like a lifetime, right? And we were, we, we've had like three or four of those moments where it was sort of, uh, you know, me and Ashley looking at each other going, well, are we doing this or not? You know, are, are we really going to do it? And you have to continue to say yes. And the road just continues to, to unfold. There's this saying about like, 
you know, you don't have to know exactly where it goes, but you just, as soon as you get to the horizon, you can see further. And that's, that kind of kept happening to us. We kept coming to these points and then we'd say, okay, now we got to go to that. Now I can see the next place to go. Building out, you know, one mistake I would say about what we, how we've built things out is we really took every staircase step. And I think it was a very conservative approach and, and not a bad thing necessarily. But if I had to go do it again, you know, I probably would have just bought big tanks, you know, hoping that we'd grow into them because there's, there's so many, there's so many, so many frictional costs when you're trying to, you know, move equipment out and move new equipment in. And we were really kind of scaling from like originally a five gallon container now to 3000 gallon containers. And we took every staircase step along the way, every kind of size, and that just created frictional costs and slowed our scaling down a bit. So, you know, I think you can, you can uh, start out and go a little big a little earlier and try and grow into it. But do you feel like that's perspective you have now because, um, you know, you were safe and comfortable and taking the steps that you were personally willing to take instead of doing those bigger jumps or? Yeah, exactly. I mean, part of it was cash constraints, right? I think there, you know, we were really uh, starting from scratch early on, um, I remember we we used to drive to, I don't know if you've ever seen those um, water filtered dispensers like outside of a grocery store. It's like 50 cents and it'll fill up a five gallon thing. You know, we couldn't afford this nice purification system that we wanted. So we were driving to these grocery stores and filling up these five gallon containers of purified water and driving them back. And, you know, at one point uh, we were trying to splurge on like a um, a hot water dispenser instead of having to you know, have something over, um, you know, basically our oven or our stovetop. Uh, and it was at $1,500 and we couldn't afford it. We were trying to, um, you know, finance it. (laughs) We didn't have any credit. It was just like, when I say looking back, we were really constrained with a lot of our, you know, the things we could do early on. But if I had a little bit more foresight, I think the idea is just that you have to plan for success ultimately and, and believe that you're going to grow into a big company. And so, the sooner you can get that equipment under your belt, if that's the, the route you're going, then I think the better. Now that you are armed with uh, venture capital and also investors, what are you investing in now? And what are you doing that's helping you to scale to that next chapter? We're investing in people uh, now. And, you know, I think it's Tony Robbins has this quote about, you know, early on you hire your friends and then then you go from friends to hiring people who have no experience. And then finally you get to people who actually do have experience. (laughs) So, you know, that's another thing I would advise people to do earlier than later is as soon as you possibly can bring in people who have been there and done that, you know, we're not the first beverage company in the world, although I believe we're the best kombucha, but there's people who have built things before and and have that experience and it's invaluable in a lot of ways. So we're finally at a point uh, where our entire leadership team is basically stocked with people who, have been there, done that in, in, a, in a number of ways. And they're not cheap, right, to bring on, but I believe good people pay for themselves ultimately. So we've we've grown into that. We're also investing in uh, marketing around the new retailers that we were launching in. So we're, we're now nationwide at places like Sprouts and Walmart and, um, you know, soon to be Whole Foods and a number of other uh, rate retailers. Uh, Target, we're, we've got a couple of regions now we're in. And 
we want to just make sure that we're, while we're opening up uh, new territories and new distribution, that we're growing brand awareness in those areas. So we're, we're trying to do a number of activations and, and any kind of thing we can think of to build brand awareness. And that's the other thing we're investing in. I think the challenge that comes with hiring, not only are you looking for skill sets or like a good fit for the company, but it's also a challenge for you to let go of responsibilities and just like letting the team and trusting the team to take care of things that you used to do. Um, so how has that for you personally, just like building out the team and letting go of responsibilities? Well, it's very topical at the moment because just as of this week, we hired our first ever um, chief financial officer. And I'm, I'm really excited about that role in particular because, you know, as you know, I've been kind of the default CFO <laughs> for the last 10 years. And you get to this place where, I don't know, I, I got to a place, I guess, for myself that said, I, I can add a lot more value to this company uh, and I'm spending way too much time in Excel. <laughs> so I, if I'm, to, you know, I, I'm, I'm at my best when I'm out there doing stuff like this and talking to people and, and raising brand awareness and getting creative and, and trying to, you know, develop new products and things like that. And, you know, wor- worrying about the finances is important, but there's people way better than me to do that. And, um, you know, understanding where your, your strengths and weaknesses are is very important. And you want to hire people that you feel intimidated by, right? You want to, you want to feel like you're the least smart person in the room. And, uh, these people are, you know, someone that can mentor and teach you. And, and that's, I think what we found in, in the, in the entire team we have currently, so hiring is tough. We've made a lot of mistakes along the way. So I think, you know, checking, um, checking your network and getting resource, you know, ref- references and, um, you know, people are, in- you want to find people who are basically um, the best in class, I would say. And, and that's hard to find. Sometimes it takes a lot of time, you know, our, um, uh, yeah, I mean, our, our sales team worked at other kombucha companies in the past. Um, they weren't necessarily available to come work for us until they were. And then, you know, all of a sudden, they're, now they're on our team. So it's, it's, it's things like that that sometimes take time, but eventually you find the right people if you're out there looking. Another aspect of scaling you mentioned is investing in marketing and being in more retailers. Um, for the early day founders, how do you go from being in a farmer's market to actually getting a contract from a retailer and what advice you have for that process? I think something that I've learned over the years is, uh, that at the end of the day, we're kind of in a real estate business. And what I mean by that is these retailers are looking at every slot on shelf as a piece of real estate and your product should be generating more revenue than the next product that they could put in that slot, right? So you're you're vying for a very finite amount of space. So what the retailers want to see ultimately is that you will add more value than the next guy. That takes sometimes data. It takes a good story. And that's what data can help you provide. And what we try to do, and I think what, what's been working for us long term, is starting very small. And sometimes that's all you can do. But for us, we there's been intentional points in time where we've said no to retailers. We don't want to expand. We're not ready. We want to drive awareness and continue to drive velocity because that story is what you can go and open new doors with. So for example, we're now the fastest growing kombucha in what they call the natural channel, which would be like Whole Foods and Sprouts and, and the conventional channel, which would be things like Walmart and you know other grocery outlets. Um, so 
we are the fastest growing kombucha in the category and in every channel. And so that's the kind of story you want to have. And so when you sit down with a buyer at a, at a retailer, you know, you got to kind of make them an offer they can't refuse and <laughs> say, you know, this is a product that not only tastes great, looks great, it's the right price point, but it performs because that's ultimately what these people want. We had um, some really great people early on. So there's a, a chain here in Los Angeles called Lassen's. They have about 13 locations and it's a family owned business. So the founder actually reached out to us at one point um, just through word of mouth and tried the product. And he said, hey, I want to carry you in my stores. So that was a lucky break early on. And that doesn't always happen. you know. So as much as you like to believe that people will just discover your brand and say, hey, they'll call you up and say, hey, we want to carry you. That's typically not how it works. In fact, um, sometimes it's hard to even get an audience with the broker. And there's, there's I think, an evolving um, uh, structure here. But in our industry, it's there's a lot of uh, broker intermediaries, right? And so the brokers are representing a number of brands and they're the ones who get the FaceTime with the buyer. So sometimes um, seeking out the right broker can be the best thing you can do um, because these are the people who have, have longstanding relationships. And, you know, I think performance and people is what it ultimately comes down to because you, you, you do find those who want to take a chance on you and, um, and then, but it's, it's always easier if you've got something that performs. Another part that I wanted to ask about growth is everything is still produced in-house um, in California, and now you're expanding nationwide throughout America. How do you balance that logistic side of shipping costs, logistics of reaching different geographic stores versus like a traditional beverage company that has bottling plants all over the place and they really can, can compete on those like costs and margins of being bottling locally with different factories. That's another topical discussion. I mean, we've, we've been playing around with the idea of opening up a different plant, maybe at a different part of the country, especially because in the last couple of years, freight has really become a huge factor of costs. And there was a moment in time there where it wasn't as high. And so therefore staying in California and, and shipping to the entire country was not that prohibitive, but as freight prices have gone up through COVID and everything else, it's presented that kind of reality where we might have to do that um, and open up another shop. But I think it takes a considerable amount of scale to do that because there's so many inefficiencies that come with having two different plants. You have two different teams, you have two different inventories. So trying to avoid it, but it might be something that we do ultimately. And then, you know, as far as like shipping online, it's it's a struggle for us, but something we think is very worthwhile. So, you know, for through our Shopify store, for example, we're shipping cold product, which is not easy to do. We're we're shipping boxes with green foam and and ice packs and and things like that that are heavy and create you know even more freight costs. So, um, that's one of our biggest costs. You know, when when uh, we're shipping online and we try not to pass too much onto the customer, it's something that we believe is, in the long term is the right thing to do because. I think that the trend of people wanting the, their, their favorite products just showing up at their door is not going away anytime soon. And another aspect of the online business that's um, been really successful is the addition of subscriptions and helping customers replenish their kombucha. So talk to us about the subscription side of your online store. It's the most exciting part of our business in a lot of ways because having that recurring revenue I mean, if I'm just speaking from the finance side, that's the best thing 
any business could have is predictable income, right? Because it helps with your cash flow and your, your inventory planning and your production planning. And it actually gives us sort of a heat map of, of demand, right? Across the country, we can start to see, hey, which markets are really taking to our, to our product even organically? So we've seen really surprising markets pop up out of nowhere um, in the Midwest. Um, you know, at one point, I, I, you know, Philadelphia was in our top five markets. Um, Florida, what, there's a there's a town in Florida that was in a top five market. So you get sort of uh, sometimes uh, surprising data that comes out of that that helps you understand which even retailers to go approach next because you say, well, we've got we know we have demand in this market, um, and it makes sense for us to expand there. So it, it helps in so many different ways. And, and I, you know, qualitatively, the best thing I could say is just the people that write to us and love having their kombucha show up. As a company, you're focused on improving people's health, but you're also going through so many chapters of change and scaling, and you also have to take care of your mental and physical health. So for yourself, what are you doing to maintain that healthy work-life balance? Well, you're right. I mean, especially through COVID, that was our saving grace is just protecting our, our health and wellness routines. And we, we kind of had to bring in or bolt on even more support, I think, through the last couple of years, because just meditating in the morning didn't seem to be enough. <laughs> so, you know, um, so meditation has been critical for me. Um, and I always feel better. And I feel like my brain works better if I get some exercise in, in the mornings. So those are like, that's like the bare minimum for me. Um, we went a little overkill over the last couple of years. We put an infrared sauna in our house, <laughs> you know, and uh, and we go see an amazing acupuncturist that lives down the street. You know, things like that that just can help, um, you know, bolster your your immunity and your mindset. I I, I think it's critical. It's sort of that thing where you got to put your own um, oxygen mask on before you can help others, and that's something that's become very apparent to both me and Ashley over the last couple of years now that we have two kids and we have an entire team of 40 people and we have to take care of these people. We have to take care of ourselves first so that we can be in a position to support them. And has there been, I guess, one major lesson or one piece of advice you want to give to new founders and those who are building out their business? One major lesson I would like to leave with your your listeners who, you know, especially for the ones who are entrepreneurs starting out, is begin with the end in mind, which can sound very cliche. But I can tell you that the more you do that, the easier your, your journey is going to be because it's going to help make decisions a lot easier. For example, you know, when we started out, our first goal was to be at a farmer's market. We, you know, we were just trying to cover our, our income uh, and keep doing some music where we wanted to. And if you're successful, you know, you're presented with all kinds of decisions you have to make. And if you, if we were out there, I guess, in the beginning saying, Hey, we want to grow this into be a national brand. You know, we would have a lot of decisions that were a lot easier to make early on, you know, things like taking outside capital or things like, you know, going in on a facility or, um, so begin with the end in mind. Know if this is something that you're building for your family and it's a lifestyle business, or if it's something you're trying to raise money for, take on investment and then you know, sell it and get a good return for those investors. I'm not a big believer on just building to sell, but it's important to know, um, you know, what your ultimate goal is and being honest about that, because that can just help make the whole um, journey that much easier. 
That's great advice. If you can actually plan it, imagine it, then you have a more likely chance of achieving it. Well, thank you so much for being here, Trey. Thank you, Shwang. I really appreciate it. That's Trey Lockerbie from Better Booch. I'm Shwang Esther Shan, and I'll catch you next time on Shopify Masters. <laughs>